0: Ok, everyone, so uh, welcome again! <laughs> Can't have too many welcomes, right? The more welcomes the better, that's what, <laughs> that's what I reckon. And it's nice to see you all. It's always a positive thing to come here to the Buddhist Society. It has a nice feeling to this place. I don't know what you think, but I feel it has a nice feeling, a nice vibe, as they say. You sit down and you kind of just draw in some of the atmosphere. And this is one of the reasons why we come here, because it kind of supports the meditation when you have a sense of uh, good companionship and uh, good people around you. Uh, and these are all very important perceptions to develop, and if you develop these perceptions uh, it is uh, very, very helpful for the meditation. Uh, and I'm also very fortunate, I live in a monastery. Uh, you believe that? Uh, it's true, I, be- I live in a monastery. Yeah. <laughs> And living in a monastery has many advantages. One of the great things about living in a monastery is you have really good companions in the monastic life. Uh, yeah, and uh, this is one of the beautiful things about having monks around you, uh, like Venerable Yamaka over here is that these are really good people, people who try to do their best, try to aspire to something wonderful. Uh, And just that aspiration, uh, just like almost all of you here today, maybe all of you, I shouldn't say almost all of you, (laughs) all of you here today, you have some kind of positive aspiration, uh, otherwise you wouldn't be here, and that's a wonderful thing. But what I uh, want to talk talk, uh, about tonight is uh, uh, actually some similes of the Buddha. Uh, you know, One of the things that uh, I feel is my job as a monk, and as a teacher of the Dhamma, is to bring out the word of the Buddha, bring out the Buddha's teachings. Uh, it's kind of what this, uh, very much what um, Buddhism is about, understand what the Buddha actually taught. Uh, and uh, I don't know if you have tried to read the Sutta. Sometimes people try to read the suttas and they start yawning straight away, first paragraph, oh, boring, oh. Can't read this. (laughs) And uh, you know, it's not entirely, if you do find it boring, it is not entirely strange because uh, these teachings were originally given in an oral context. Yeah, there were oral teachings and oral teachings because of uh, the way oral recitation works, it has to be very repetitive. That's how you understand, how you keep it in mind, how you preserve it for the future. So oral um, literature, or oral recitation, is not really so suited for reading. So When you read it, it can seem quite boring sometimes. But there's one thing uh, in the suttas of the Buddha that's actually really interesting, and that is the similes of the Buddha. They are really often very lively, they give a kind of flavor to the teachings. And there's something about the genius of the Buddha that really comes out in the similes. This ability to come up with a simile that illustrates a certain point of Dhamma almost perfectly. It's like, wow, this is just such a beautiful way of putting it. And this is one of those amazing things of the Buddha, and it really comes out in the suttas. So even if you just read the suttas for the similes, uh, yeah, it's worthwhile. Uh. So read the suttas for the similes. It's a kind of an insider kind of hint. Yeah. So read. Okay, boring, boring. Ah, simile. Okay, read the simile. Next simile to page, two, three pages. Okay, next one. I read that one. Uh. That's what I'm going to do today. Yeah, just similes, nothing else. Uh, just to kind of keep things really exciting. Yeah. Is that a good idea? Is that all right? Uh, yeah. Do you approve? Uh, yeah. If you don't approve. I don't care. <laughs> Let's see, see what I'm going to do it anyway. So, uh, so I'm going to start with um, a couple of similes that are found in uh, one of the suttas, a sutta called, in the Pali, it's called the Alagadupama Sutta, and the middling sayings of the Buddha. is a simile of the cobra, a simile of the snake, is often how it is translated. And this particular sutta, it uh, starts off fairly early on, it has two similes, and these are very well-known similes in the Buddhist world. uh, And they are obviously well-known for a reason, because they are worthy of uh, uh, contemplation or whatever. uh. And one of the things that you will often see is that some of the core teachings of the Buddha, like the similes, uh, sometimes they are repeated elsewhere, uh, or sometimes they are referred to uh, in other parts of the suttas. and this is one of those strange things that you realize with the suttas. It's like they are an integrated whole. Yeah, in one place they refer to something that happens somewhere else. In one place they just give the name of the simile without giving the content. It's understood that it is explained somewhere else. The whole thing is like a cohesive whole referring to each other. And this is what gives us very much the flavor of being spoken by one person, yeah. because everything refers to each other in this kind of remarkable way. It is a cohesive and a complete whole, and without all the bits it doesn't really hold together properly sometimes. So this first simile is known as the simile of the snake. Do you know the simile of the snake? (laughs) Nayana? So, no, I don't have to answer. Just, uh, <laughs> you probably know it already. And some of you are very educated in Buddhism. Uh, and sometimes, you know, as a, as a monk, sometimes we find people who travel around the world and people know more about Buddhism than you do, and it's kind of scary sometimes when that happens. Uh, and you start to say something in Pali, and they will kind of say it ten times as fast as you, yeah, all the way to the end, not just halfway, like I can. Uh, and that's kind of uh, very interesting when that happens. Uh. The simile of the snake is a very uh, interesting simile. It's the idea that uh, how we deal with the teachings of the Buddha. And this is a nice starting point, because how we deal with the teachings of the Buddha kind of gives us access to the world of the Buddha, or the word of the Buddha, if you like. And that access is really what we call right view. Yeah, right. View the beginning of the noble eightfold path, Samaditi, The starting point of everything. If you haven't got a little bit of that right view, you don't even get started. So how we deal with these teachings is foundational because that is where we actually enter this world view of the Buddha himself. And so the simile of the snake says that if you uh, you have to read the suttas in the right way, and if you read the suttas in the right way, it is very beneficial for you. But if you read the suttas in the wrong way, it can be detrimental for you. Yeah? So it's actually very important to understand how to read the suttas, how to approach the word of the Buddha. And the Buddha says it's like a snake. Yeah, The sutta starts, it's kind of interesting how we started, it, or the symbol starts by saying, if you need a snake, if you are in need, if someone is searching for a snake, in need of a snake. Yeah. I always found that really curious when I read that. What do you mean, in need of a snake? We're trying to run away from the snakes. So we're not searching for snakes. Yeah, If I see a kind of a tiger snake in the bush, there's a big snake on my walking path just the other day, just outside my window, just two meters away. It's this really big snake, fat, fat big snake. Yeah and then it kind of walked, it kind of went, it didn't walk, but it kind of you know, slithered away or whatever. <laughs> and then it kind of somehow went under my walking path and then it found a hole in the walking path and it stuck it head up out of the walking path just as I came out and it was kind of looking at me and it froze when I came out of my door. It's kind of this, it's like, like a stick coming out of the walking path. So I didn't say I'm in need of a snake, but anyway, that's what the, <laughs> the sutta says so this man, yeah, or this person, is wandering in search of a snake. Yeah? And if you are unskilled, if you don't know how to handle a snake, yeah, you grab the snake by the tail. And if you grab the snake by the tail, yeah, what happens is that the snake turns around and it bites you. Yeah? If it is a cobra, cobras are very, very poisonous snakes, as in this particular simile, that's it. You're finished. You know, in Thailand they call the, um, the Cobra, the King Cobra, they call it the one-step snake. Yeah? Because after you're bitten, you go one step and that's it. Uh. It's called the one-step snake is a kind of a nice name for a, for a snake. Yeah? And so this is kind of the wrong way of grasping the Cobra, in the same way you grasp the teachings in the wrong way. Yeah? And the wrong way of grasping the teachings uh, is that you learn the teachings, uh, but you don't really investigate them properly. Yeah? You don't understand. What is the real meaning of these teachings? You don't acquire a view that aligns with those teachings. Instead, maybe you use the teachings to argue about things. Yeah, yeah, there is rebirth. No, there's not rebirth. Sure, you fool, I know there is a rebirth. What do you mean, I'm fool? You are the fool. Yeah. And there's kind of a, It's interesting, in the suttas, there's examples of this kind of arguing found in the suttas. This is exactly how they argue. Yeah, your doctrine has been refuted. Save your doctrine if you can. Yeah, this is kind of how they, kind of <laughs> how they argue. Uh, and this is kind of the ancient Indian idea of debate. Yeah, it's very really kind of full on, in your face, uh, debating here. And that is wrong because if you do that, uh, all you do is create more turmoil, more disharmony, more bad combine, all of these kind of things. Uh, yeah, and it doesn't really get you anywhere if all you do is arguing, argue about these teachings. Uh. But if you look around the Buddhist world, it is quite common. Uh, yeah, and often it happens also in uh, monastic circles as well. Uh. One of the things that it says in the suttas is, is that. Uh, they talk about the difference between lay people or ha- householders and monastics, uh, and they say that lay people, or householders, uh, they often argue about the things of the world. Yeah, they argue about what they, you know, what can be acquired or had in the world and these kind of things. Uh, whereas monastics argue about views. Uh, yeah, and it's quite a common thing here yeah? because views, the path, obviously, is fundamentally important for you as a monastic. Yeah? And so argue about that. But it's not shouldn't be about arguing. It should be about understanding. And you end up creating lots of bad merit or demerit if you use it only in that way. You use it to be proud. Use it to show off your understanding. How much you know of Pali, how to conjugate certain Pali words. Yeah, I know that you do know all the cases of the Pali nouns? You don't? Ha, I do. (laughs) That sort of thing, right? (laughs) And uh, then it doesn't really work, yeah, yeah, because then it becomes counterproductive. Huh? So what is the right way? Huh? Well, what is the right way of catching a snake? Huh? Well the right way of catching a snake is that you have a stick. First of all, you don't to use your hands, right? You use a stick when you catch a snake. Huh? And you have a cleft stick, a stick that kind of has a cleft on the bottom. Huh? And then when you grab the when you want to get the snake, huh, you put the cleft down and you put the cleft over the neck of the snake. Huh? Yeah, and once you put that clefted stick over the neck of the snake, then you can grab it by the neck. And if you grab it by the neck, obviously it can't bite you. So what is the equivalent of grabbing the snake by the neck in terms of reading the suttas? And the equivalent is reading the suttas, reflecting on the meaning. Yeah, What does this mean for me? What is this sutta really about? How does it affect my life? You start to internalize the sutta, huh? Yeah, Instead of being an intellectual thing, something that is in your head, uh, something you argue about, it's something that actually becomes personal to you. Huh? It has a deep kind of meaning for you. Huh? You understand what it means to be moral. Huh? You understand what it means to be kind. It's a felt experience that you have inside of you. Huh? When the Buddha says, live well, you understand why you're supposed to live well. Huh? Yeah? You relate these things to your personal experience of the world. Huh? And then as you do that, as you reflect on these teachings in the, in the right way, making them your own, you acquire the view of the Buddha. You start to see the world in the same way. Yeah? And then it becomes incredibly powerful. Because then what you're doing is you're purifying the first factor of the Noble eightfold Path, Samadhiti. Right view is getting purified and that becomes this incredible powerhouse uh, that drives the entire path forward. uh. I gave another talk here just a few weeks ago in the beginning of January uh, and that was on how right view is the foundation of so many things in Buddhism. uh, And this is really making the same kind of point uh, but from a slightly different angle. uh, So use the suttas in the right way. uh, Reflect on them. uh, Try to figure out what they are about. And then you don't argue anymore, because you understand that argument is part of the problem. Yeah, We don't want to argue, in fact we want to create harmony in this world. Yes, we have to discuss things, but if you're going to have a discussion, you have a discussion which is kind of peaceful, where you try to uncover the truth, rather than to win the argument. It's no longer about your sense of self, about whether you are right or not, it's about trying to understand. And if you try to understand, you can have very productive discussions with other people, because both people are listening, rather than trying to present your view. So this is the right way of dealing with the Buddhist teachings. Yeah, The simile of the snake, don't grab the teachings by the tail, Yeah, if you do that. You have a problem. And then you are on the right track. Then you start to read these teachings. And then they start to become meaningful and powerful to you. Then there is the second simile found in this particular sutta. And this is a very famous simile of the rafter. Do you know the simile of the rafter? Does anyone know the simile of the rafter? Yes, one person over there? Only one person. Well, okay, over, I, I drew. Of course, yeah. Drew knows all the similes in the suttas. I didn't even see you, Drew. I should have. If I seen you, I would never have asked the question. Uh. But, <laughs> no, of course. Yeah, Nicholas, of course, knows that one. And many of you will know the simile of the it's a Very famous simile. Yeah. And uh, so, when you come to these teachings uh, and you start to read them, uh, the main thing that you start to uncover in the suttas uh, is that the suttas are not so much explanations about how the world works yeah if you would call it metaphysical ideas about the world in other words theories about the world ideas about you know what actually is and what is not uh, the vast majority of the suttas are really about the path or practice. Yeah? That's really what they are about. And the more you read them, the more you realize that. Because that is the critical thing. What we have to do to achieve all the good things in life. Meaning, um, happiness, joy, everything that is useful in life is acquired by practicing this particular path. And so, the simile of the raft is really about the path. Yeah and how we should deal with that path, and how it actually works. So what I'm going to talk about later on uh, as the similes progress, I'm going to use similes to show the path of Buddhism through similes, how it works through similes. But this is like an overview of the path. And the simile is as follows. As a man or a person, I should say, it doesn't matter if it's a man or a woman, a person, walking along, and as they walk along they come to a river, yeah, a large expanse of water, a deluge, whatever it might be, call it a river. And when they come to this river, yeah, they realize that the shore they are on is dangerous. The shore they are on is full of wild animals and dangerous things and robbers and criminals and murderers. Murderers, you know what the murderers are in this case? The murderers are the five khandas. Yeah, that is who you are. You are your own murderer. Isn't that kind of interesting? Why? Well, because these khandas ultimately, attachment to them is what leads to death ultimately. The khandas are the murderers. This is another simile, but a simile related to this one. So this shore is dangerous. And you see this large expanse of water, and you know the far shore is the safe shore, so you need to cross. But there is no bridge. There is no ferry person to take you across to the other side. A ferry person is like someone who takes you across, right? You don't have to do anything, there's no spiritual practice, you just pray to God and bang you go to the other side. It's too easy. Yeah. It doesn't work like that. And so instead of just taking the ferryman, allowing the ferryman to take you across, because there is no ferryman, you have to make your own way across. You have to build the raft. So you gather together all the little wood, the flotsam that is there, the leaves and the sticks or whatever, and you tie together a raft for yourself. And this raft that you are tying together, that is the Noble Eightfold Path, Yeah, right there. This is the raft that takes us from the dangers of life, the dangers of existence, to the far shore, which is Nibbana itself, extinguishment. That is the meaning of Nibbana. Things get extinguished. Yeah? So you take this beautiful raft, you climb onto this raft and then when you get onto this raft that you have tied together, the Noble Ethel Path, then you make an effort, yeah, you make an effort, you paddle with your hands and maybe you swim a bit with your feet or whatever and as you do that, you hold on to the raft, right? You don't let go of that raft, you hold on to the raft while you're in the middle of the stream. And then eventually, using that raft, you get to the other side. And so then the Buddha asks, well, what should you do when you get to the other side? Should you take this raft or think, oh, this raft has been so useful? Thank your raft and then carry it with you wherever you go because you are attached to that raft? Or should you put the raft down, beach it on the shore, or let it go on the stream of the river? And the answer is obvious, right? There's no point in carrying that raft along. The raft has done its job and if you carry it along, you're just kind of showing your attachment to that raft. There's no point. So you beach it or you let it go yeah, down the stream. So this is kind of the overall idea of the path, right? You cross samsara, you cross this stretch, this kind of expanse of water to reach the safe side on the other side. And when you get to the other side, you let go of that raft. So what does all this mean? What does it mean to let go of the raft on the other side? And one of the ways that this has been understood traditionally in Buddhism, I don't know, you may have heard about such ideas as crazy wisdom. Have you heard about crazy wisdom? Yeah, one Nicholas, heard about crazy wisdom? <laughs> crazy wisdom is this idea that some people have that you can be wise and crazy at the same time. I always say that you're either crazy or you're wise. There's no such thing as crazy wisdom. But anyway, some people argue that's crazy wisdom. And this is where the crazy wisdom comes in, right? The reason why it comes in here is because you okay, you come to the other side, you're not supposed to carry the raft, okay? so we put the raft down. Now the raft is the Noble Eightfold Path, so we put the Noble Eightfold Path down and to one side. It means we can do what we want, because we've gotten rid of the raft, for goodness sake. It's bleeding obvious, the Buddha says so. Put the raft to one side, do what you want. Yeah, there's no limits anymore. Morality is not relevant for enlightened person, right? They have gone beyond morality. Isn't that true? It is not true. It is the wrong understanding of the path. But this is sometimes some. How? The way you kind of understand these kind of similes. And this is where the first simile kicks in. You haven't really reflected properly on the word of the Buddha. You haven't understood what it is, and therefore it becomes really problematic. So what it actually means is this. It means that when you have crossed that treacherous stretch of water, the dangerous expanse, which is samsaric existence, uh, the realm of life and death, of being reborn and dying, uh, of all the problems that we have in our life, when you have crossed that, uh, the process that happens from one shore to the next one uh, is a psychological change. You are changing as you go across. Yeah, You may have noticed that in your own life, if you practice well, there is change over time. You're literally becoming someone else. You're becoming more purified. You're becoming more kind. And these things come out naturally. And when you reach all the way to the outside, you have taken these teachings so deeply that they have transformed you psychologically to such an extent that it is impossible for you to live against the Noble Eightfold Path. yeah, You can't do it anymore. You have internalized these things. In a sense, you have become the Noble Eightfold Path. You are a walking example of the Noble Eightfold Path. And this is the beautiful thing about uh, you know, the Dhamma, is that because people become an expression of the teachings, uh, through their actions, through who they are, because that is what they become. It is possible to tell who are the good teachers in the world, yeah? by observing them, by knowing who they are. Do they express this path or don't they? And if they express the path, well there is some chance that they have uh, uh, achieved something. If not, well you know it's wrong. So when it says at the end that you put down the path, put down the, the raft, actually it is automatic to put down that raft. You don't have to do it. Yeah, because it happens automatically, what it means is because you have internalized all of these things. You don't have to hold on to the raft anymore. While you are in the middle of the stream, as you are crossing over, we have to hold on to this raft a little bit. We have to be careful. Okay, how can I make sure that I live according to the kindness that I'm supposed to live by? How can I make sure I don't have too many angry thoughts or whatever? Yeah, We have to actually hold on a little bit to morality. But once you have crossed over, you don't have to hold on anymore. You have internalized it so much. You understand the danger of doing the wrong thing so profoundly that there is no way you're going to touch those hot coals of immorality and stupidity. You let go straight away. And that is what happens when you become enlightened, yeah? awakened, when you understand the nature of things. One of the things you understand is the danger of doing things that are not right, doing things wrongly. Yeah. So you don't have to let go of the raft, it happens by itself. So the point here, those people who carry the raft, once they have come to the other shore, they haven't actually reached the other shore. Yes, yeah? so if you see someone carrying a raft, is that a common sight in Perth? People carrying rafts. If you see someone carrying a raft, yeah, you know they haven't reached the other shore, yeah, because that's what people don't do if they have reached the other shore. If you see someone carrying a raft, you know something has gone wrong. What does it mean to carry the raft? Well, what it means is that you are still holding on to these teachings. You're still attaching to them. You're still arguing about you know, whether the Buddha was right or not. Is there rebirth or not? You still have some of those defilements of the mind that we're not supposed to have. That is how people are still carrying the raft on the other side. So this is the idea, with this idea similarly of the raft, and why it is so important to understand it in the right way. But the main thing is that the noble, eightfold path is like this raft. Hold on to it. Don't think that it happens automatically. The right time to let go of the raft is only when you get to the other shore and then it happens automatically. So what is this raft?
1: As
0: I said, it is the Noble eightfold Path. Another way of thinking about the Noble eightfold Path is in terms of the three kind of qualities, the sila, samadhi and panya. Sila, morality or conduct, samadhi, meditation or deep meditation, and panya is the wisdom. Uh, this is another way of dividing up the path. Uh, right? Uh, so the, in a sense the raft consists of the, th- these three things. Uh, and sila is one of those foundational things, the conduct uh, in our life, how we live our life. Uh. So I'm going to give you a simile for this idea of sila. And this is a simile that I have uh, uh, Taught a lot very often when I teach meditation retreats and these kind of things, and it's a simile that made a lot of a big impact on me, especially in my early years as a monk, because I thought it was very, uh, it was a very powerful uh, inducement uh, to practice morality. And this is the simile of the mountain. Uh, yeah? the simile of the mountain when the sun goes down in the evening, uh, and the sun goes down behind the mountain. Uh, then the mountain casts this enormous shadow over the land and all the land in front of the mountain, because the sun goes down behind the mountain, all the land is immersed and completely enveloped in that shadow cast by the mountain. And the Buddha says, our morality, our kindness, our goodness in the world is the same. If you are a person who lives really well, and I'm talking about really high level now of morality, uh, when you come back home after a long day, maybe you're tired, uh, you sit down, maybe you lie down on your bed, you sit down in your favorite chair, or you just chill because you're exhausted after a long day, uh, yeah, and especially giving yourself a bit of time to kind of recuperate a bit, uh, you can feel the mountain of those good actions. Uh, yeah, it's like you are sitting back, like you are bathing in the shadow, being enveloped by the good actions in your life. And you think, you reflect, I have lived. you know that you have lived well. You don't even have to think it. You know, I haven't done anything bad in my life. I have done good actions. I have been generous. I have supported other people. I have thought with kindness about other people. And just that knowledge, because you don't have to think it, is enough, and then you bathe in those good actions, like the shadow completely envelops the land in front of the mountain, in the same way you are enveloped and immersed in the goodness of your own life. And you cannot avoid being happy. You cannot avoid feeling a sense of gladness, yeah, because the power of those actions is so great. Isn't that wonderful? You can't avoid, even if you want to be miserable, you can't be blooming miserable. Isn't that good news? And of course you don't want to be miserable. And so this is this idea of the power of morality. It is automatic that you will feel good about yourself if you live up to the high standards of Buddhist morality. But you have to take it really seriously. You have to really understand how powerful it is. So you take it incredibly seriously and then it has this kind of transformative effect. When I was here last time, I gave a simile for how to help us to purify our morality How to make morality very powerful and important in your life. How to remember it all the time that you have to live well. Yeah? And uh, this simile is based on the idea again that right view is at the foundation of everything on the Buddhist path. And right view is also at the foundation of morality. If you really have right view, you will be moral all the time. You will slip up, maybe like that, very shortly, and as soon as you slip up, you beg for forgiveness straight away to overcome that slip up. That's how powerful it is. There's a nice expression of this to bring in some sub-similes. The other main similes are like the ones that I'm going to talk, and it's just some sub-similes, secondary similes, to kind of fill in the gaps between the other similes. This other simile is, the simile of the how, someone who is a noble person, how they practice the path. Yeah? Why they are able to always live ethically, why they always are close to samadhi, why the wisdom is always there. And the Buddha says it's like a cow with a calf, or maybe a mother with a baby. Yeah? And the Buddha says when the cow has a calf, no matter what that cow does, if it is grazing or going from one field to the next one or going to be milked or whatever it is, it always keeps an eye on the calf. It never forgets that calf. Yeah? This is the power of the noble ones. They never forget the calf. So the noble ones don't forget the calf. What is the calf of the noble ones? It is the practice of the Dhamma. It is the morality, it is the meditation, and it is the wisdom. It is always there, always keeping an eye on these things. And so last time I was here, I gave a simile to kind of express this, which I thought was quite a nice simile, and I've talked about this in a few different places. And this is, connects the idea of right view with morality. Sometimes people think that to be moral, I have to be really mindful. Yeah? Because if I'm mindful, I will be aware of my mind and be aware of my actions, and then I will do the right thing. But actually, mindfulness is not strong enough. Uh, because very often you lose your mindfulness, you forget what is going on. In the heat of the moment, you lose it completely. And especially, even as a monastic, yeah, you forget about these right things sometimes. As a lay person, even more difficult. So how can we remember these things when mindfulness gets weak? Yeah? And the answer is right view. And so I will show you how this works. And it's actually a very simple idea. Now, if you uh, come to a street, this is what I was saying last time. Uh, if you come to a street, uh, yeah, a busy street like you'd go down to St George's Terrace or whatever down in Perth, right? Uh, or one or maybe one of the freeway, even worse. Uh, and you have to cross the street. Uh, what do you do? Do you just kind of walk into the street without looking anywhere and just hope for the best? Or do you look li- right and left first of all? How many people here just walk into the street? Nobody, right? Not a single person. Okay, good. I'm glad because if you did that, you, you should probably leave this hall and see a psychiatrist or something instead. <laughs> <laughs> Because it's crazy, I guess sometimes people get so kind of caught up, I know what it's like with a mobile, actually I don't know what it's like with a mobile phone because I haven't got one, but I can see what it looks like and sometimes people almost walk into the streets when they're kind of too busy with a mobile phone. That shows you how crazy you go with a mobile phone, it's almost like some kind of psychiatric disorder. But. um, so uh, you always look left and right, right? And you don't have to be very mindful. You don't have to tell yourself in the morning when you wake up, today, when I go into the city, I need to be mindful so I always remember to look left and right. You don't even have to think that. It's automatic that when you come to a street, you will look left and right, because otherwise you might die here. And you hope, unless you're an Arahant, I wouldn't recommend dying here. And if you are an Arahant, please stay and teach, rather than die here. Yeah? This is what I recommend you to do. So uh, why is it that we look left and right every time? Why is it that we never forget that? Because we have right view. We know the danger. The danger is so deeply embedded in our mind that whenever you come to a street, you know that you have to look left and right. It has got very little to do with mindfulness. It's just a profound knowledge of the danger of the situation. And in exactly the same way, if you know the danger of acting wrongly, of speaking wrongly, of thinking wrongly, you will always know when you come to a point, when you have to speak, when you have to act, or you have to think, yeah? When you know that, you will always think first of all, what is, you will look left, you will look right. What is the right thing to do at this moment and what is the wrong thing? And the reason why we don't do that is because we think it is less dangerous than crossing the road. That's why we don't do it. But what if it is more dangerous? And I tell you, it is much more dangerous to act wrongly, much more dangerous to speak wrongly, much more dangerous to even think wrongly than it is to cross that road. Yeah, if you cross the road, okay, the car comes, you might die, okay, and you get reborn somewhere, you carry on anyway. It's not such a big deal, right? You of okay, you, you know, we have to die from sooner or later, so you die a little bit sooner, that's really the only difference. But if you mess up when it comes with your morality, what you're doing is you're messing up your long-term future. And you have no idea what's going to happen in your long-term future. You don't know what's going to happen even with the rest of your life. And so what we need to do in this kind of situation, because it's so hard to understand, this is where we need to use the Buddhist idea of right view to remind ourselves of the importance of doing things right now. So what is that right view that helps us? And one of those things, obviously, is the idea of rebirth. Because once you understand the kind of the expanse of samsaric existence, of birth, of death coming again and again and again, and that you now are laying down the groundwork for how we are going to experience that samsaric existence in the future. Your next life, the life after that, the whole broad spectrum of how your future is going to unfold depends on how you live now. Yeah, Then you start to understand the power of this. But even more important, I think, for the majority of people uh, is not just the idea of the broader idea of samsaric existence, uh, but the uncertainty right now in our lives. Uh, we don't know what's hiding around the corner. Uh, we don't know. If tomorrow you're going to become a Christian, yeah, tomorrow you're going to, our oh, Buddhism, poor, too hard, you know. I went to this Dhamma talk, I heard Ajahn Brahma, they say, you have to always look left and right at every time you do an act. Too much for me, I'm going to Christianity, I'm just going to pray to God and hope for the best. Yeah, it could happen. I heard people say these kind of things, yeah. Christianity is a much better deal, yeah, than Buddhism. You have to have so much responsibility and you really have to practice really hard or whatever, yeah. But uh, the uncertainty is so great. We don't know what's going to happen tomorrow. When are we going to die? Changes happen so fast, so fast. We all know that if we look back in time, we can see changes in the past. There was a very interesting experiment that was done a while ago. I read about this a few months ago, a very fascinating experiment. And this shows us why it is so important to contemplate impermanence. Yeah, uncertainty, unreliability, change. You can now see how all of these various factors come together, right? By contemplating impermanence, which is part of right view, that supports your morality. What this experiment said was that they asked people, first of all, to look into the past. Yeah, like go 10 years back in the past and ask them, can you see the changes in your life? Can you see the changes in your personality? Can you see that you have developed, that things have happened to you one way or the other? And they said, oh, yeah, I can see the changes coming. And then, of course, you know, I became a you know, better person or a worse person because this happened. And then, kind of, now I'm here. And wow, I've gone a long way in those 10 years. And it's kind of amazing how much change has happened. But then came the interesting point, because then they asked them, Well, now try to look 10 years into the future. Can you see the change in the future? And what was very interesting was that no, most people, when they looked into the future, what they saw was basically just a slightly different person of themselves maybe someone who is a bit more wealthy, maybe someone who is a bit fatter because they're getting older, maybe someone who is getting a bit, you know, whatever it is, older at least, but basically they were not able to understand change in the future. Only change in the past were they able to see. And this shows us how difficult it is, even a very simple idea like impermanence, anicca in the suttas, the idea of the unreliability of the world, the insert- a simple idea like that, that we take for granted very often, that we think we understand, actually we don't really get it. Because once we try to look at it into the future, we're not able to see that impermanence in the future. And part of the reason for that is because the sense of self, the sense of self, demands stability, demands certainty, and it blocks us from being able to see how things actually change. So if you want to understand the future, don't try to think of the future. Look to the past instead. Look at the change that happened over the last 10 years, 20 years. Look at how the world has changed. Look at how your life has changed. Look at how other people's life has changed. And then you start to understand what is going on. And the problem is that there's all of these causes and conditions under the surface. Uh, yeah, it's like when you have an earthquake. You have seen in, did you see in Iceland, all this earth, these, uh, these uh, uh, volcanoes and things coming out? It's kind of, uh, in one sense, it's kind of cool, but it's, in another sense, it's also quite scary if you live there, obviously. Uh, But there's all these tensions building up underground, all of this seismic activity, and suddenly one day it comes to a crunch, and the whole earth opens up, tears apart, and the lava comes flowing out. And it's the same thing in our life. Under the surface, there's all these things, cause and conditions building up, building up and building up, until one day they come together, and they have such force that they make a dramatic change in your life and you don't see it, and then when you see it, oh, what's happening? Why is this happening? The reason it's happening is because it's been building up for a long time, out of sight, and you didn't even know it was going on. So impermanence is incredibly scary, because it is so uncertain. Yeah, You look at the world, you look at the politics, you look at the wars around, people are now starting to talk about the Third World War. Yeah, This has started to become a serious talk. Um, you know, among people who know what they're talking about. Is that something we want? This is how kind of the world is, yeah? It is so unreliable. If someone had said two years ago or three or before the invasion of Ukraine about the Third World War, you would laugh. It seems so ridiculous. But suddenly it seems like a possible reality. That's kind of scary, yeah? Because war is incredibly, incredibly unpleasant. And so we understand the danger, we understand the uncertainty And when you start to do that, you start to understand now is the time to practice kindness. Not after this talk, but now! <laughs> what am I supposed to do right now to practice morality? Well, first of all, I will try to speak to you. I should speak a bit more kindly, right? Maybe I'm using too much energy into the way I speak. Okay, a bit more gentle, maybe. Okay, everyone. So whoa, <laughs> what is the right way right now? I was just sitting. It was interesting today. I was sitting in a monastery because I happen to be the senior monk in a monastery. Right now. Ajahn Brahm is away. Ajahn Brahm is in Sydney. Ajahn Appi is in Thailand. So I am the boss. <laughs> so I kind of lorded over the junior monks. Is that right, then, <laughs> monk? So, but, I, but it was interesting because I was sitting at the kind of the boss monks and I was looking at everyone was there, right? And I was looking at, and I was thinking at that moment because I have tried to condition myself in this way over a long, long period of time. And so I very often think this thought, yeah? What should I be doing right now, which is kind of what is right? And I was sitting there looking out and I was thinking, what should I actually be doing right now? Then of course the thought came to me right away, what I should do is look at the beautiful qualities of all the people in front of me, because these are really good people. And straight away I looked out, I saw all these monks, and I saw people who intend, who want to do what is good in the world. How does anyone become a monk or a nun, or even coming here without wanting that? And straight away I felt the sense of Goodness, about sitting there in a group of people that actually is very wholesome and beautiful. That was the right thing to do at that, right, that time. That is the right thing to do right now. Yeah? What should I do right now? Yeah, This is what I should do. Or if I can't do that because of some problem, at least I can have compassion for the people around me because I know we're all suffering together in this world. So, right now is something, there's always something we can do to live in the right way because we understand the urgency is in this moment, not the next moment. And the Buddha has another beautiful simile, there's another sub-simile, there's not the real simile, yeah? So, to kind of put this on the sub-level, not the main level. And this is the simile of the head being on fire or your clothes being on fire. Yeah, it's a very powerful simile. It occurs in a number of places in the suttas. And the Buddha says that if you have some bad quality in your mind, bad quality in your conduct or speech, you should look, at, look upon it as if your clothes are on fire. Well, what do you do if your clothes are on fire? Well, presumably you act pretty quickly, right? Oh, okay, try to get it. I mean, that's pretty scary. If your clothes are, or if your head is on fire, your turban is on fire, or whatever, you kind of act soon, right? Otherwise, you're gonna, you have a serious problem. And that is kind of what the Buddha says about our actions by body, speech, and mind. Yeah, now is the right time. No, other time will come. Why? Because things are so impermanent. Things are so unreliable. You don't know when the opportunity comes around next time. Now is the time to live in this way. And if you live in this way, if you carry on like this, year in, year out, week in, week in, out, day in, day out, second in, second out, yeah? second in, second out, right? All the time. If you do that, you are building up that mountain that will cast a shadow over you when you eventually come back home, you sit down, you relax, you let go of the burdens of the day, you can feel the mountain of good actions. You feel good about yourself because you know that you're living a good life. It's such a beautiful idea. yeah. So please make sure that you build up this good mountain in your life of good actions allow that mountain to envelop you, the shadow of the mountain to envelop you, and to kind of immerse you in that feeling. And you feel good inside. And when you have that good feeling inside, a sense of self-worth, self-value, self-esteem, knowing that you live well in the world, knowing that you're doing the right thing, it's a very, very beautiful thing. And it becomes the foundation for everything else on the Buddhist path. So that is the simile of the mountain. That then becomes the foundation for the next simile. It becomes the foundation for meditation practice. Because when you have that goodness in your heart, that positive feeling within, that is where meditation becomes possible. And there's a beautiful simile for meditation, which also happens to be a simile of a mountain. mountains There's actually three similes of mountains here, so I hope you like mountains, otherwise you have a problem. Most people like mountains, right? Mountains are kind of cool. They're big, majestic. Often snow on the top or whatever. There's something very beautiful about mountains. And so the second simile, which is about uh, explains meditation practice, uh, is about this. Uh, 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 there's a monk who is visited by a prince. Prince Jayasena comes to this monk, and uh, what is this monk called again? Ur. Uh, anyway, forget about it. It's, it's, some, it's a monk. It's a kind of, it only occurs in one sutta. It's a kind of minor a minor monk, or whatever you want to call it. I am not sure if that's the right word, but you get the idea. So the prince comes to this monk and the, and he asks the monk, uh, he says to the monk, well I have heard that uh, it is possible to attain this thing called samadhi, where the mind is completely unified, uh, but uh, I don't believe a word of it. So you try to... Uh, convince me. Yeah? <laughs> that's what he says to this monk. His poor monk says, actually, I'm just new to the practice. Yeah? I'm just a samanera. I don't know that much about the practice, so go and ask the Buddha instead. Yeah? And the prince says, no, I want to hear it from you, yeah? because now is the time, don't wait till tomorrow. No, he doesn't say that. That's, that's what I'm saying <laughs> in this talk. Yeah. So please tell me. And so this, he fails, right? He fails to convince this prince uh, about the idea of samadhi, of deep meditation practice. Uh. And then this um, uh, Samanera, he feels really dejected and down because he's unable to convince the prince about the value and the profundity of meditation practice. Uh, so he goes to the Buddha and he tells the Buddha the story of what happened to him. Uh, and, he say, and the Buddha then tells him, well, if you had remembered these two similes, uh, it may have been the case that you would have been able to persuade this prince. Uh, yeah? And one of the similes is about the taming of an elephant. Uh, how you kind of gradually tame the elephant, and eventually, because you take a wild elephant, eventually it becomes tame. The same thing with the human mind. It is very wild in the beginning. Yeah. Is that right? Has anyone here got wild minds? Yeah, you know what it's like. Yeah, the mind is kind of out of control. Yeah, it's a bit wild. Uh, I think someone said that the average person has seventy thousand thoughts per day. Seventy thousand thoughts per day. That is uh, That's that's when you don't sleep, right? So that is how many thoughts an hour. That's about five. That's between five and ten thousand thoughts an hour. That's more than a thought per second. Yeah. So if you count all the thoughts, you can see how kind of crazy the mind actually probably is. Probably not entirely wrong to say that. So you tame the elephant. You tame the mind. Eventually, it comes becomes okay. Yeah, it becomes enlightened or whatever. Yeah? And then there's the other simile, and this is the simile of the mountain. And I find this particularly interesting because it's very similar to a uh, teaching that Ajahn Brahm gives. Ajahn Brahm talks about his time in Central America when he was climbing the pyramids, and it's like climbing the mountain, getting out of the jungle of the world, yeah? and then seeing things in a new way. So the simile of the mountain is this: two friends walking along, and they're walking through the jungle. In the jungle, what is that? Well, the jungle is a simile for life. yeah. simile for all the senses always around us, a simile for all the burdens that we have, all the attachments that we have in the world, all the things that always impinge on us, that burdens us down. This is what the world is like. And so we are completely immersed in this world. We never have any real perspective. And then, as they're walking through this jungle, these two friends, they come to this mountain. Actually, maybe it's just a hill. Let's call it a hill. The hill is more realistic, I think. Yeah. So then they come to this hill, and then one friend says to them, I "says Well, let's climb the hill." And the other friend said, "Nah, I couldn't be bothered." Yeah. Nah is kind of the Australian for no, and I have Australian citizen now, so I got to say use the Australian lingo. So nah, nah, I couldn't be bothered. So okay, you but you go up, right? You go up to the top of the mountain. And so the other friend, he goes up to the top of the mountain yeah, and he looks out and he kind of sees all of these things on top of this big hill and he shouts down to his friend, he says, hey, mate! Yeah! <laughs> so I can't do it, I'm still not properly kind of quite Australian enough, but you get the idea, yeah? hey friend or whatever. So he shouts down to his friend at the bottom. Yeah. And he says, you won't believe it. When I stand at the top of the mountain, I can see the fields around. I can see the little roads. I can see the beautiful little villages, the beautiful little rivers, and all of these things around. It is so magnificent and beautiful from the top of this mountain. And then the fellow at the bottom, he says, "Uh, no, I don't believe a word of it. What do you mean there's fields? I can't see anything of it. I don't believe a word of what you're saying Kind of a bad friend, right? Doesn't believe anything of what his friend is saying. Anyway, so this friend on top of the mountain, he gets a bit exasperated because he he walks all the way down to the bottom of the mountain, grabs his friend by the arm, pulls him up to the top of the mountain, and he says, Look, what do you see here? And he says, Ah, yeah, I see beautiful fields, little villages, nice streets and roads, yeah. Just now you told me that you didn't see any of these things, so, what are you, so what's going on?" He said, oh, because this big mountain was in the way, I couldn't see any of these things. And so the big mountain here is a simile for the hindrances of the mind. Yeah? The kind of the things that block the mind from seeing the greater reality. Yeah? And it ascending to the top of the mountain, this is like meditation practice. It's when your mind kind of withdraws from the world, pulls out of the world, reaches a higher level. And when you reach that higher level, you look out and you understand the world around you for the first time. You understand what the world really is like. And what you actually understand is the human realm. You understand the five senses, you understand the sensory world, you understand the world what our ordinary life is like, because you have pulled yourself, you have lifted your mind out of all of those things, and so you see the reality. And what you see is very beautiful, because these high states of mind are incredibly powerful and incredibly beautiful. Yeah, You realize that this is really, really worthwhile. If you can have one, Powerful state of meditation in your whole life uh, that will change your entire direction of your life. One state of meditation like that, uh, yeah, because you understand that the world is very very different uh, from what you thought it was. uh. So this is the power of meditation, the simile of the mountain, uh, the elevating the mind, like kind of almost like uh, you know a the mind being lifted up by the helium by the beautiful, light qualities of the mind, bringing it up and giving you that kind of bird's eye view of reality, seeing what really is going on, understanding the world for the first time. Now you understand what the world is like. That is the simile of the mountain. So each one of us, it is our job, if you want to do this path properly, If you want to have a life-altering experience uh, that gives you a different understanding of reality, uh, you climb that mountain. and you climb that mountain largely through the process I was talking about before, which is the seed of the morality, and then add on top of that the meditation practice. Come down to Jhana Grove Retreat Center, yeah? At least once a year, do a nice retreat, check out how your meditation is going, yeah? And then see if you can take one step more up that mountain. And if you are heading in the right direction, every year, every time, you will take a few steps more until one day you reach that top of the mountain. Uh, and when you're there, then you have one of these traumatic experiences, not traumatic, dramatic experiences, uh, yeah, that changes your life uh, uh, forever. That much is enough to change your life forever. But of course, it isn't the end of the story. Uh. So that is the simile of the mountain. Uh. They go. Then you have to go even beyond that. I'll just carry on a few more minutes. Uh. Then you have to go beyond that. The next one, beyond that, I said there's the three factors, the three ways of dividing up the Noble Eightfold Path: Sila, Samadhi, Panya, Morality, Meditation, and Wisdom. The next simile is the simile for wisdom. And the simile for wisdom, says the Buddha, is like when you go to a mountaintop, another mountain, yeah. Yay! Everything happen. now you know why all the sages and the cartoons are on the mountain tops, right? Uh, this kind of all coming together now. Uh, I always wonder why are they sitting on mountain tops. Must be very awkward to get food and drinks or whatever. But anyway, that's where they are. Now this may be one reason. Uh, it's kind of inspiring. Uh, so you go up in the mountains uh, and you find find a mountain lake. Uh, have you ever seen a mountain lake before? Uh, I used, to, as a child, I used to go hiking in the mountains a lot. In Norway, is full of mountains. Uh, and I could see some of these lakes. And some of these lakes are incredibly beautiful. Uh, on a still day, when nothing is moving, they are like transparent. Uh, there's no pollution because it's high up. Uh, and so you look into the lake, you can kind of see 10 meters down, and it looks like there's nothing. It's more clear than the air, for goodness sake. Yeah? Because the air, the water is cleaner than the air around it or whatever. Uh, incredibly clear. And when you look into it, uh, you see, you see what is there. You see the pebbles, uh, you see the stones, uh, you see the little fish swimming around, uh, and sometimes you see the fish standing still or whatever. Uh, This is like the mind, sometimes the mind moves, uh, sometimes it stands still. Uh, And the idea of the mind that is clear, like a mountain lake, uh, this is the mind that comes out of the stillness of samadhi. And when you come out of the stillness of the samadhi, that clarity gives you the ability to see into the mind, all the way to the bottom of the mind, everything that is going on. And what you see of course, you see the three characteristics of existence. You see impermanence, the unreliability of these things, always moving, always changing. The fact that there is no substance to this, yeah? that there is no self in the ultimate sense. And because it is all unreliable and all uncertain, there's nothing to hold on to, why it is in the end. Everything is problematic in the end, and you have to let it go. That is what you see when you look into the mind. The mind becomes clear. There is another sub-simile to all the similes I want to talk about. And this is the simile of the five hindrances. The five hindrances say that, the five hindrances, right? The sensuality. The sensuality is like the mind that is colored. The water full of colors, uh, that's sensuality. Yeah. Ill will, the second hindrance, is like water that is boiling. Yeah. Yeah, you can't see into it properly because it's boiling, it's full of bubbles. Uh. The third one is the tiredness and lethargy. Tiredness and lethargy is like moss on the water. Yeah, It is like murky and dark, you can't see into it because of the tiredness and lethargy. Yeah. Restlessness and... Uh, Wariya uh, is like the water is like there's a wind on the surface there's waves on the surface uh, and the last one is doubt doubt is actually the murkiness that's why um, that is kind of the um, the water is like um, has mud in it or something yeah so it's murky and dark yeah? so coming out of those hindrances the water becomes clear that, like the mountain lake yeah? only then can you understand what the mind is about yeah? and then uh, that is kind of the end of the path uh. But then the Buddha has this beautiful simile that gives kind of again an overview of what it is like to discover all of this. Yeah? What is really the spiritual path really about? And one of the most interesting things to me about the spiritual path, it is like an adventure. This amazing, extraordinary adventure. Adventure into meaning, into purpose, into real happiness, into love, compassion, understanding, All the beautiful things in life, anything that anyone would want in this world is held in this path. It is the greatest adventure any human being can have. You look at people in the world that try to climb Mount Everest, they go to the South Pole, yeah, they do crazy things in balloons, they go kind of doing all kinds of dangerous sports to try to stay alive. For ordinary people, the adventure is maybe to go to a new restaurant. Yes, a bit more humble. That's what people do. Or they kind of do something, go for another holiday overseas somewhere. That's kind of their adventure. But we all want adventure. But if you want the ultimate adventure in your life, that adventure is the adventure of the spiritual path, the noble, eightfold path. The Buddha says it is like you are walking through the jungle. You see the jungle again, yeah? the mess of life, the burden of life, the problem of being immersed in all these conflicts and all these problems in the world. You're walking in the jungle. And then one day you come across an ancient path. That is the noble, Eightfold path that you come across. And when you follow this ancient path in the jungle, you don't really know what you're doing. But you have faith that this path is going to lead you somewhere. You follow the path. And as you follow the path, You come to this clearing in the path, where the sunlight is coming through, where you can see what is going on. And when you see what is going on, you see this beautiful city there, ancient city. And you understand that you have arrived at some kind of powerful and beautiful destination.
1: Yeah,
0: And then you clear up that destination. You bring the city back to life again, and then you bring Uh, people start to live there, and the whole city comes to life again as a consequence. Uh, And this is like the path of the Buddhas. Uh, The Buddhas discover this ancient path. Uh, They come to the goal which is Nibbana. They become enlightened, they become awakened, uh, understanding what life really is about. Uh, And then, when they do that, uh, they teach it to other people. Uh, And then the city is like the Sangha, the lay people and the monastics, grow and you expand the Buddhist community. This is like the city coming alive and it becomes prosperous and grand like it was in the past, like it was under a past Buddha. And I think the reason why, one of the reasons why the Buddha uses this beautiful simile of the ancient city in the jungle is precisely because what we are doing In Buddhism, what we're doing on the spiritual path is the greatest adventure anyone can ever have. If you walk through the forest, I don't know what you did as a child, I used to ha- hang around, walk around the forest all the time, climb under rocks, climb rocks, climb trees. That's kind of what my life was like when I was a kid in Norway. and That's kind of how everyone lived back in those days, I don't think they live like that anymore. But that was like a small time adventure, and it was fun. I enjoyed those things. Yeah? I used to go skiing and do all kinds of, kind of minor adventures, as they would, I would call it now. But this is the real deal. So if you want the adventure of your life, uh, if you want to have something that is truly meaningful, uh, and on top of being the adventure of your life, overcome suffering, uh, overcome all the problems of the future at the same time, uh, then this is the path for you. uh. This contains everything, uh, and this is why it is so extraordinarily interesting. uh. Okay, so there you are. uh, little talk for this evening. uh. Alright everyone, so uh, now is the chance to uh, ask some questions, or to make comments if you like, or uh, we don't take any uh, complaints, but uh, questions and comments are welcome. (laughs) So please, anyone do it from the hall here first of all, if anyone would like to... uh, Ah, thank you. Everyone is okay? No one wants to say anything? OK, Wow, people are really contented. That's, that's wonderful. Yeah. I don't come here so often. this is your chance. Going, going. Gone. OK. <laughs> All right, so let's see what they have from overseas. Wow. One of the things I really enjoy about these overseas questions is that people from around the world are listening to these things. Yeah. Isn't that kind of great? We have the ability to share the Dhamma with the entire world over the internet. Just looking at the, um, the people here one person from Bolivia, Myanmar, Germany, and Singapore, right? Uh, that's pretty cool, right? That's kind of <laughs> covers a large. There's no one from Antarctica, so let's try Antarctica next time, but we're kind of getting there. So, uh, anyway, so uh, let's see what this has to say. Dear Ajahn Brahmali, in the suttas, when wisdom is mentioned, they always say they have the wisdom of arising and passing away. What does it mean? Does it refer to impermanence or to what? It does absolutely refer to impermanence. And so the, uh, the wisdom of arising and passing away is actually the wisdom of stream entry. This is like the profound understanding of the nature of reality, the first insight into the nature of reality. And it is not just any kind of arising and passing away, but it is is arising and passing away of everything that pertains to you as a person. In other words, what we call the five khandhas, the five aggregates, the five aspects of personality. You understand that as arising and passing away. And arising and passing away doesn't just mean that it is always changing. It means that it is arising out of nothing and passing into nothing. comes into being and then disappears completely. It is also referring to the idea of rebirth. At rebirth, the five khandhas, the five aspects of personality, arise yeah, in a particular uh, realm or a particular rebirth, and then when you die, you pass away from that. So in all of these ways are, uh, are aspects of the idea of arising and passing away. Um, Udayavaya, it is called in Pali, Udaya is arising, not rising, but arising, yeah? coming out of nothing, and, and vāya is ending, completely terminating. Yeah? And it's important to get these translations right. Some people translate it as, as rising and falling, yeah? and that gives the wrong idea, because a rising and falling is like a substance, a rise, like the waves rising and falling. That's not what it means. It means uprising and passing away, coming into existence, disappearing. Yeah? So little things like that are important in translation. If you want to hear more about little things like that, come to one of my retreats. Then we have a question from Myanmar. Hello, Myanmar, I hope you're doing okay over there. Dear Ajahn, if emptiness means we just vanish at the end, what is the point of all this practice and in life? The point of all this practice is to end suffering. Yeah, that is what you want to do. And as long as you are holding on to anything, you will not end suffering. That is the whole point. The dear self that you have, the things that you cling on to, you think as belonging to you or being you, all of these things are part of suffering. So do you want to suffer or do you want to get out of it? That is really the question. And if you want to get out of it, you have to go to emptiness. Emptiness is an incredibly beautiful idea. And the reason we don't see it as beautiful is because we don't understand it. Yeah. So be careful, remember the whole point of the Buddhist path, the whole point of any spiritual path that is worthy of its name, is that it's supposed to be challenging. If it is not challenging, it's not worth anything. It has to be profound, right? And the Buddha, set his teaching up against all the other teachings in the world and said, my teaching is different because what I teach is non-self. In other words, I teach emptiness. Yeah, And that is what makes the Buddhist teachings unique in the world. The idea of emptiness, the idea of anatta or anatman. That is the thing which makes it special. So be careful with judging these things. Yeah, Stand back, allow these things to mature in your mind. And one day you may understand why emptiness? why the ending of everything is the most beautiful thing that can ever happen in the world. It's difficult to see because the sense of self stands in the way. But once you start to get it, it becomes very very beautiful. Okay, dear Ajahn, are the suttas not just intellectual? Is it not enough just to ask and listen to your heart and skip the thinking? Um, (laughs) No, it is not enough. I'm sorry. I wish it was that simple. If it was that simple everyone would probably be enlightened because everyone has the opportunity to listen to their heart. But the heart is not always telling you the truth. Sometimes your heart lies to you. Yeah. Sometimes people want to follow their intuitions, but are your intuitions accurate? Sometimes they are, maybe sometimes they are not. Yeah? So we need to know that one of the biggest problems in for human life is the distortions of our perception, the distortions of our mind. This is called delusion, it's called moha, a on the Buddhist path. And those distortions are what kind of perpetuate the defilements of anger and greed and desire, all of these kind of things. And because the mind is distorted, if you follow your heart, very often what you're following is actually delusion. One of the things your heart will tell you, oh, I'm a beautiful person and maybe you are beautiful but you may not be a person you see that is where often you go wrong <laughs> and so this is really profound so you need someone the whole point of a buddha is that the buddha has penetrated the darkness of the world penetrated the veil of ignorance or the veil that veils the world you can't see it clearly pull back the veil and then you can see what's going on and so we you, you rely on someone to have done that. That is the purpose of the Buddha, to start this whole teaching. Yeah? Yeah? And that faith and confidence in the Buddha, why that is so important. And the suttas as we have now, they are in place of the Buddha because the Buddha is no longer here to teach us, so we have to deal with the suttas and uh, hopefully also some of the noble people that may still be around in the present day. Yeah? Okay, last question for tonight. Dear Ajahn, in meditation I have at times heard my mind talking to itself. It is clear to me it is a separate existence to I. Is this what they mean by insight? (laughs) Um, There is a little bit of insight there, right? It is uh, what you are seeing, is that you are seeing that the Verbalization of the mind comes in many different ways. And sometimes you can feel that it is the I that drives the verbalization. Sometimes it feels like it is your ego that does the talking. Yeah? You want to talk. You put yourself out there in the world. You want to say, I exist yeah? or I want to be whatever. But sometimes your ego fades away, and there's still thinking going on in the mind. So the I is kind of fading away, but there's still thoughts there. And those thoughts are not driven by the ego in the same way, but they are still thoughts, so they are still a problem. Yeah? So there is like degrees of thinking, if you like, ego-driven thinking, and thinking that is much less ego-driven. And uh, the less ego-driven thinking is better than the ego-driven thinking. But eventually you want to overcome all thinking. And that is where the real profound meditation uh, becomes possible. Okay, everyone, uh, nice to see you all. I wish you all a pleasant weekend and a nice week ahead. Let's just pay respect to the Buddha Dhamma Sangha.